if you grabbed a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn it to the book of Jonah. If you didn't, if you, if, you want, if you need somebody to bring you a Bible, you can raise your hand and we'll have an usher bring you one if you didn't grab one before. Uh, but want to make sure you guys can follow along. We're really excited that we were able to get all these Bibles and we're able to offer them to people. So we're, we're going to be doing uh, the book of Jonah today. But if you open to the book of Jonah, then put a finger in there and then also turn to Matthew uh, 12. We are in this series uh, called Ancient Cliff Notes. And We've been, we've been in this series really the entire fall, and we've had a really, really, really good time with it. Last week, we did the book of Job, and I've gotten tons of feedback on that one. Uh, before that, we did Jeremiah, and before that, uh, Pastor Austin did David and Bathsheba. Uh, we, we've, we've covered tons of different ancient stories throughout the, uh, through the Old Testament, kind of asking these questions of uh, what happened then? What does it mean for us now? What does it mean for us today in 2018, almost 2019, uh, America, Detroit? And then how does that point to, uh, how does it point to Jesus? Uh, and today we're actually, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite books, one of our favorite stories in the Old Testament, and that's the book of Jonah. Now, if you were with us two years ago, uh, one of the first series that we did uh, when we got here was we did a series through the book of Jonah. So we've spent a lot of weeks studying this, this book, diving into it, going really deep into it. Uh, so of course, today we're going to only be able to kind of consolidate that into one message. But if you were here, some of this may feel like a repeat, a little bit of that. We're going to give some new things that we didn't talk about then. Uh, but if you want to learn more about this story, this is one that we've provided a lot of resources for you for already on our website. And you can go back and watch or listen at any time. Now, I mentioned earlier in this series when we were kind of, we were in like in the Ruth and uh, Hosea messages. Uh, I was originally planning on doing this message, the one on Jonah in October, and we were going to try to line it up with when Yom Kippur uh, fell, uh, and that didn't end up happening uh, for a lot of reasons. But the reason that we wanted to do that is, is, is this. If you're unfamiliar, Yom Kippur is in, Jew, is, in Jewish culture, it's considered the holiest day of the year. It's basically their biggest holiday. It's the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16, uh, it's, it's talked about in Leviticus 16. And what would happen is the high priest uh, would, they'd give them two goats. They'd bring two goats to the high priest. The high priest would slaughter the first goat on behalf of the sins of all of the people. Uh, and then the second goat uh, was called the Azazel, which means to take him away or it means taken away. And what would happen was the priest, right, he would confess the sins of all of the people from the entire year into this goat, and then he would send it away. They would take, it would be taken away uh, to a remote place, bearing the iniquities of the people on itself was the idea, to a place that would never be seen of or heard from again. And so between what happens between these two goats, the one that's slaughtered and then the one that's sent away, sin for the entire, for the entire nation for that day was atoned for, for the entire year, for everyone, for you, for your neighbor, uh, for the person who you don't want God to forgive because of how much they hurt you, but God's grace still reaches to them. But that was also the other thing about Yom Kippur was it, you also couldn't hold something against somebody else any longer than Yom Kippur. So it, on the day that everything was dealt with for the, for the next year, you couldn't carry the last year's offenses into this new year. Right? So that is because Yom Kippur offered a clean slate for everyone every single year. So that's why even to this day, uh, it's a very important day for, uh, for Jewish culture. And as odd as this may sound, every year on Yom Kippur during their afternoon services, 
they actually read the book of Jonah in its entirety. They sit down, they read together the book of Jonah. It originally started as a tradition where in your home you would get your family together and you'd read the book of Jonah. Now as they have the afternoon services, they read the entire thing. I remember a couple years ago during that, we actually read the entire thing all at once and everybody was like, this is brutal, it's way too long. It wasn't really even that long, it's four chapters. But we tried that once, we're not going to do that today. But the concept is, for the Jewish people, is that Jonah's story is your story. His story is my story. It's your story. It's our story. He's the story of someone who runs from the call of God, and yet God continues to pursue him and never give up on him. And he never revokes the call on Jonah's life, just like he'll never revoke the call on your life. And this book is absolutely fascinating, and we're going to just kind of cliff notes through it pretty quickly today. Uh, but Jesus, he actually made this really easy on us. Every, every message we're trying to figure out, how does this point to Jesus? Well, this particular story, Jesus actually points to and says, hey, this story points to me. So that makes it really, really easy for us. So that happened in Matthew 12. I'm going to read this for you uh, in Matthew 12. The Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign. They're like, Jesus, show us a sign. Prove to us that you're the Messiah. And Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 38 through 41. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, and they said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But then Jesus answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, it seems like if Jesus uh, says that the only story you're going to get that's a sign is this story of Jonah, then maybe the story of Jonah is a story we should pay attention to. He goes on to say, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. In other words, Nineveh, this generation in Nineveh was redeemed, and they will be the ones doing the judging on behold, uh, because they repented and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah is here amongst us today. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, we thank you, Father God, uh, just for all that you do in our lives, Father God, for what you're doing this year through our church at Joy to the D and with Christmas and with giving families Christmas and with helping people uh, get, be able to do things that maybe they couldn't do, uh, Lord, without you, God, and without the help of your church. Father God, we thank you for the honor that it is to be your hands and your feet in this community. And we ask, Lord, that you would just have your hand on that event, have your hand on our church, Lord, that everything that we touch, Father God, would just point people to you. It wouldn't be about anything that we're doing, God. It would, it would just reflect your love, that we would lo love our community well and be agents of reconciliation as ambassadors for you in this place, God. And right now, Lord, as we study a story that we're somewhat familiar with, God, most of us at least, we pray, Lord, that you would give us fresh eyes to see this story, Lord, in ways that change us and renew us, Father God, and make us more excited to serve our city and more excited to be followers of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would speak through me today, that everything that you would have me to say, I would say, and let everything else just fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. Lord, we love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so throughout our series, this Ancient Cliff Note series, one of the themes that we've kind of constantly returned to uh, is one of the most important themes of the Old Testament. And it's the Hebrew word chesed. Okay? 
chesed. Now, this is one, it's one of the most important and powerful descriptions that we get about God. We, we talked about it very thoroughly when we talked about Hosea. We talked about it very thoroughly when we talked about Ruth. Uh, in, in fact, it's my belief that uh, we should approach everything in life with this word in mind. The word chesed is translated in some Bibles as loving kindness and in others as steadfast love. It's love that never lets go. It's love that holds on. It's, it's love that will never, ever, ever cease. And at the root of the word, uh, you get the image of a mother swan that is plucking out uh, her own feathers and then lining the nest so that the, her babies can, can rest in comfort and, and, and not be, you know, so she's giving herself discomfort to be able to, so they can rest comfortably. Uh, Daniel Block, he's a commentator writer. He wrote a commentary on the book of uh, Ruth and the book of Judges uh, that, that, that I studied when we, were doing, when we were doing the book of Ruth. Again, Ruth is a very, very big on this. It, it kind of wraps up, this word kind of wraps up the whole story of Ruth. Um, but he says, he, he says that in, in the entire English dictionary, there's not one word that could possibly describe what cassette is. Uh, there's no word that can do justice to this, one, to this one word. So much is wrapped up into it. Uh, and, be, and the problem is, is that he was explaining is the reason that we can't get this right is because this word is actually a covenant word. It's a covenant term, uh, which basically means that it's something that is specific between God and God's people. So he has something very specific that he's, com- that he's said that he would do for his people. And wrapped up in this one word, uh, Dan- uh, Daniel says, is that Daniel Block says, is all the positive attributes that we get of God. It's all kind of summed up in this one word, said. Now the reason that it's so important to remember that this is a covenant term is because throughout the Old Testament, God makes and renews covenants with Israel over and over and over again. Okay? So you get it with Abraham. Uh, you get it with Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, where they cut the covenant. Then you get it again in, in, uh, in, in Exodus 20 with Moses. And then you get it again in Exodus 34 when he renews the covenant in Mo- after the Ten Commandments have to get given a second time. We, we've gone through all of that, right? And, and the concept is that God is willing to put himself through pain for you. The concept is that God is willing and he's so committed to you and he's faithful to you that he will be loyal even if you're not loyal. He will do what he promised on your behalf even if you don't do what you promised on his behalf. That is the word kaseb. Now, covenants, especially early on, they always were focused between God and the people of Israel. How God would obligate himself specifically to those people. I don't know if you remember, if you were here when we talked about Hosea. It was the best example of it, in my opinion, in the entire Bible. God tells Hosea, he says, Hosea, I want you to be a prophet. Okay? But before you can speak for me, you have to first understand me. So he says, Hosea, you need to understand the pain that I'm going through. You would have to marry a woman of whoredom. You would have to marry a prostitute. And so Hosea does that. He marries a woman who he knows is going to be completely unfaithful to him over and over again. And yet Hosea is faithful to her. Even when he entered this, knowing that she was going to be unfaithful, he kept being faithful. And in fact, you find out later that even when she was off and she thought he was silent and she thought Hosea was gone, Hosea was actually paying her bills. Hosea was actually taking care of her the entire time. That is kased. It's, it's, it's a way to explain that unending, steadfast love of God that throughout the Old Testament seemed to be directed toward Israel. 
okay? But it's used differently in the book of Jonah. But before we get into how it's used in the book of Jonah, first we need to understand the story of Jonah. So let's cliff notes through this, and we're really going to cliff notes pretty quick through it today. Uh, the story starts by God telling Jonah, Jonah, go preach to the people of Nineveh. God calls Jonah to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, okay? And, and Assyria is what would today be known as Iraq, right? And Assyria, during that time, they were, they were, just, they were just about Israel's biggest enemy. It was during a very dark time in history for Israel because of Assyria. Uh, the Assyrians were constantly attacking and killing the Israelites. The book of Isaiah, the book of Chronicles, 2 Kings 15, 2 Kings 18, they all record multiple accounts of the Assyrians coming in, attacking, taking over, deporting people, taking what they want from whoever they wanted to take from. The oppression that was, that was being done to Israel at the hand of the Assyrians was really unmatched to anything that had happened before that. Right? But notice the way that this book begins. It's Jonah 2.1. It says, God says to Jonah, arise, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. So the book begins by God acknowledging Nineveh has done evil against me. But look at this very first thing that he says about it when he's describing it. When he's describing the city, he says, that's a great city. So the city that is essentially leading the charge on one of the most destructive attacks on the people of Israel is being called out for their evil, yet is being described as great. Great is the Hebrew word gadol. It means loud, large, important, and influential. This is incredibly significant because the book of Jonah is the story of a prophet who is called by God to a huge, broken, sinful city that God still believes in. Because it was a place of so much influence that he knew if that city could change, it could change the whole world. But Jonah, he doesn't want to go. And most of us, we grew up thinking, well, he doesn't want to go because he's scared of what would happen to him. And he probably was a little bit scared. They were really, really brutal people. But beyond just being scared, Jonah was angry. He was angry. Nineveh was responsible for the destruction against the people and the places that Jonah loved. And he, in his humanity, he did not want well for Nineveh. He did not want them to have an encounter with God that would change things for them. He wanted something bad to happen to them. So instead of going to Nineveh, he gets on a boat and he goes to a place called Tarshish, 2,000 miles away. So he starts off in Joppa and he could just go to make the trek through land to Nineveh, a much shorter journey, about 500 miles. Instead, he gets on a boat headed toward Tarshish. It's the bottom of what we now know as Spain. And on the ancient maps, this was the farthest place recorded. So he literally went the farthest place that he could possibly go away from the call of God. So God calls Jonah, but Jonah runs from God. He goes the other way. And then we all know this part of the story, right? God sends a storm while Jonah is still on a boat. 
And the sailors on this boat, they're like freaking out, like we don't know what's going on. And Jonah tells them, he's like, dude, this is happening because of me. Throw me over, the storm will cease. And so the sailors, they're like, oh man, what are we going to do? I guess we're going to do it. They throw Jonah overboard. I mean, he gave them permission to, (laughs) but they, they were like really guilty about it. They felt horrible. But instead of letting Jonah drown in the ocean, God sends a fish to come and swallow him, to eat him. But he doesn't eat him like he doesn't chomp him up while he eats him. He swallows him whole. Okay? He swallows him whole, and so Jonah then sits in the belly of this fish for three days, three nights, and he, after that he seems to have had a change of heart. He's like, okay, God, I will go. So the fish spits out Jonah, and God calls Jonah again. This is 3-2. It's almost identical to chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, that influential city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So, the fact that Jonah disobeyed God, and the fact that he even ran the other direction, it did not change his call. It did not change what God was able to do in him. Paul says it like this in Romans 11. He says, your gifts and your call are what? They're irrevocable. There is nothing you can do to revoke the call on your life. He actually says, we all at one point were disobedient, right? We were just like Jonah. We went the other direction. But we were disobedient, but yet we still received mercy because God has mercy on all of us. And that's what happened to Jonah. Mercy. That God would spare him from drowning, mercy. That God would call him even after he would run the other direction. Even after he would disobey God, mercy. So God calls Jonah again. And again, we go through this all in so much more depth in the, in the series online. But, but this time Jonah, he actually goes. And he preaches to Nineveh. And then this is where the story takes a very bizarre turn. See, at the preaching of Jonah, Nineveh repents. And chapter 3 ends by saying that God, he sees that they've repented. And so he then relented from the disaster that he was going to bring to them. And if we could end the story right there, the whole thing would have culminated at grace. Jonah would be the hero that overcame himself and his own selfishness and actually did something great to reach a city. And everyone would live happily ever after. But the story does not end here. Instead, Jonah gets mad at God for being so gracious. He throws a temper tantrum. And in the end, he actually says, I want to die because Nineveh repented. And then a worm and a plant, uh, a a worm comes and eats a plant that he was was giving him shade. Now, if you're looking at this and you're saying, hey, the screen is full. You have to do another screen to do the rest of the story. That's it. This is the entire story of Jonah. This is how the book ends. So we got to try to make a little bit of sense of how the book ends. So let's read chapter 4 together a little bit at a time. So Nineveh repents. God decides to, dis- to not destroy them. And Jonah says this. Well, it says this about Jonah. This displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is the said moment. And it's coming from the mouth of Jonah. And it's a very, very crucial moment in the Bible, and here's why. See, Jonah was an Israelite. And the people um, of Israel, they all believed that they were part of a people group who God had chosen to be God's chosen people. And, and that's what the Bible says about them. They were God's chosen people. They were people who God proposed to on Mount Sinai, who God has been in a covenant relationship with from basically the beginning, who's God who's recklessly pursued them, even when they have abandoned him and even when they made other gods. He always went the extra mile to reconcile them, to meet them right where they are, to meet them in their brokenness and to restore them. Even when God gave them the Ten Commandments the second time, right? Because the first time, they, Moses has to smash them because he's all mad because of that golden calf they built, right? So the second time that he gives them the Ten Commandments, God says this. Exodus 34, he says, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in said and faithfulness. It was always a commitment. This was always a commitment to pursue his people even when they were unfaithful to him. But throughout history, Israel had this idea that that was only for them. But Jonah must have had a realization in this moment. And quite frankly, it was a realization that he did not like. He realized Kassad was not only for Israel. He said, I knew it, God. I knew you were like it. I knew that was how great you were. he, He said, I knew that you would forgive them. That I knew that you would actually say, that you'd actually do what you said you'd do. That's why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. That's why I went to Tarshish. I knew if I went to Nineveh, this would happen. I know that you are a gracious God, and you're merciful, and you're slow to anger, and you're abounding in Kassab. I knew that you were like a mother swan who would pluck out her own feathers and line the nest so that her children could rest in comfort. I knew that you'd forgive these people who have done harm to Israel. I knew that your arms stretched farther than even what we realized. I just knew it. Your mercy doesn't stop with Israel. I knew it. I knew if they repented, you'd spare them. I knew you'd do anything for your children. I knew you'd come alongside them and you'd walk alongside them and you'd meet them in their struggles and in their pain and in their messes and you'd make yourself hurt so that they could experience grace. See, the significance of this moment is so much far beyond just God being merciful. This is the moment in which someone who knew that God was on his side came to the realization that God was also on the side of the people that he hated. It's like that moment in Joshua 5. The Israelites, they're getting ready to march around Jericho, and Joshua looks up. And when he looks up, he sees someone uh, who has a sword drawn, and he's holding the sword in his hand, and Joshua looks at him, and he says, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? Are you for us, or are you against us? Are you on their side, or are you on our side? It was an either-or question, right? It's are you here, or are you here? And this was the way that this person responded. He said, no, no. I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And you, Joshua, are standing on holy ground. 
So take off your shoes. So Joshua takes off his shoes. And sometimes I think that more important than trying to figure out if people are for us or they're against us, if they're for God, if they're against God, uh, if we ourselves are even on the right side or we're on the wrong side, we're always trying to figure that out. We're always trying to position ourselves for the right thing, right? I think more importantly than any of those things is realizing that we are standing on holy ground right now. We are standing on soil in which God can do anything on behalf of anyone right now. See, we, we, we tend to get mighty surprised when God seems to bless people that we think he should be cursing. But might I propose to you that just like we talked about last week when we talked about Job, that God, he knows more than you know, he sees more than you see, and he holds the entire world in his hands. And here on this earth, in this place where there's so many things that are broken, the church is here to be in the reconciliation business, not in the burning bridges and putting up walls business. We are in the business of reconciling people back to God. We are not in the business of standing in opposition to other people and to other things and to everything that other people believe that maybe is different than we are. We all need Jesus just as much as the next person in this place. And whatever Jesus does in us is an act of grace, just as much as it is if he does it in someone else. He can move in a mighty way on our behalf today in our city. And he can do the same thing for our neighbor, and he can do the same thing for the people we love, and he can do the same thing for the people that we disagree with. Because we're living in a city, an amazing city, a growing city, in which God may be moving in ways that are totally different than we ever imagined he would ever move. Even working through people that we never thought that he could use, and yet he is still being glorified in it. And that was Jonah. Jonah did not want Nineveh to repent because Jonah did not want Nineveh to be forgiven. He didn't want Nineveh to be the best Nineveh that they could be. Because God working through Nineveh went against everything that Jonah thought that he knew about God. To him, it felt personal. It felt like, okay, you're against me, God. You're against Israel, God, if you do that. But to everybody that wasn't Israel and to everybody that wasn't Jonah, what did it feel like? It felt like love. It felt like grace. It felt like God is for me. It shows them that, hey, we're standing on holy ground. And when you're standing on holy ground, anything can turn around for anyone at any time. And the arms of Kesed stretched beyond the world that Jonah knew. And they declared hope for everybody. And suddenly the work had been done in Nineveh. But there was still work to be done in Jonah. Because he's actually mad, right? He's angry that God saved Nineveh. Therefore now, O Lord, this is Jonah talking, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah then went out of the city, sat to the east of the city. He made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So basically, Jonah, he goes outside. He watches, sits somewhere with a view, hoping that God would just come to his senses and would still destroy Nineveh. Then it says this. Now the Lord appointed a plant, and it made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his comfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad about the plant. You have to notice this. You can't miss this, guys. Jonah was not exceedingly glad about being called to Nineveh. 
He wasn't exceedingly glad when the fish spit him back out. That amazing grace that was given him, he did not, he wasn't exceedingly glad. He wasn't exceedingly glad when Nineveh repented at his sermon. And quite frankly, it was a really bad sermon. It was like four words long. At least that's what we have of it. He didn't give himself to the mission. He didn't let God be his comfort and his constant through the mission. In fact, he didn't even want to be there. He didn't even stay to see what would happen. He preached. They repented. He throws a temper tantrum and he leaves. And the whole time he's mad. The only time in the entire book that we see the prophet happy is when a plant comes and gives him shade that he can rest under. In other words, the only time in the entire book of Jonah that our main character is happy is when he is physically comfortable. Does that sound familiar? It's not when he's serving. It's not when he's obeying. It's when he's retreated to his own little safe space in a world that he doesn't have to interact with anybody else and he can watch the world burn on his high horse. He can have his little daydreams about bad things happening to people who God already has redeemed, who have already repented. And of course, God doesn't let him stay there for very long. The Bible says that God then appoints a worm to come and to attack that plant. The sun beats down on Jonah's head and then again, God says, kill me, God. I just want you to kill me. This is awful. It's better to, die, or better to die than to live. And then this is how God responds. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, I, I do well. I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And we could do a sermon just on Jonah's anger. We really could. Because in his case, specifically, he was angry with what most people in his day would consider to be a righteous anger. He was angry because Assyria had caused substantial, real damage to Israel. And now it seemed like they were going to go without consequence. But his anger had distorted his view of God and of grace. Because grace gives us what we do not deserve. And the fact that God would show it even to a city like Nineveh should have been a sign of hope for Jonah. Hey Jonah, there's hope for you guy who ran away from God. You still have hope. If I can save this city, I can save you. I can do something through you. But his view was distorted, right? He believed that God should have pity on him because his comfort was taken, but he should destroy an entire city even after they've repented for what they'd done. So God says, do you do well to be angry? And he says, I do well, real well. Angry enough to die. And this sets God up for the finale. Andrew, you can come up. Let's look at the way the book ends. The book of Jonah ends with God asking Jonah a uh, very interesting question. He says, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much livestock, and this is how the whole thing ends. So first of all, here we are at the end. And God, he's still using this word great, right? Nineveh is not just any city. Nineveh is a great city. It is an influential city. It is a city of importance. And I think that something we tend to fly by is the fact that cities matter. I feel very called to the city. We've been in cities from the beginning of our ministry. We've always been in inner cities and um. 
There's just something, something that I've noticed when you watch kind of the, the stories in the Bible. Um, in the way that the gospel spread. If you study the early church in their history, the disciples and the missionaries that would follow them later, they, the majority of their efforts to spread the gospel were always done in places like the place that we live. They were done in cities. They went everywhere, but they focused most of their efforts on the places where all the people were, on the cities, right? That's where they sent the most resources. That's where they sent the most missionaries. Because the fact is, culture is shaped in the city. We've said this before, you, you can impact people anywhere, especially with the internet now. You can, you know, you can make a difference in people's lives. You can go to a place that is on the outskirts somewhere and you can make a difference in somebody's life and people need to go to those places. But you, if you want to shape culture, your best shot at doing that is in the city. Did you guys know that in recent years, Nigeria has sent more missionaries to U.S. cities than we've sent to Nigeria? Pastor Brad told me that. He's like, he's like, literally, there are more missionaries coming to our cities to try to work in our cultures than what we're sending there to try to reach their people. Because people are realizing that the major cities of the world are the biggest mission fields of the entire world right now. And that's our backyard. That's our home. Nineveh was a great city. It was by definition important, influential. And what that means is that whatever becomes of Nineveh was going to have an impact on the rest of the world because you imagine if God had destroyed it. But if the name of God is pronounced there, then it's going to be heard everywhere. I think that's why God is so adamant in, in Isaiah when he talks about rebuilding cities, why he's like, the church needs to be the ones doing that. The church needs to get on the ground level of actually helping rebuild these places because they're the centers of culture. Guys, Detroit is going to continue to grow. We know that. We're going to continue to innovate. We're going to continue to make impacts on our world. And it's truly going to go down in history. We all know this. It already is. as the greatest comeback story of any city that's ever happened. That's happening right before our eyes. It's amazing. And when the church of Jesus Christ is front and center in that restoration, then the gospel moves forward in ways that we could never, ever imagine. And that's why it matters. There's no, it's not a secret that the eyes of the world are on our city right now. And so as our, because as our city goes, the reality is the whole rest of the state will go. Michigan relies on what comes out of Detroit and God loves the city because God loves people. And the city is so full of people. But look at what it says. It says about Nineveh, it says there are 120,000 people there and they don't know their right hand from their left. They can't figure out their own lives. He says, you care about a plant. Jonah, you care about a plant that because the plant made you comfortable and yet you expect that I would not have pity on 120,000 people who do not even realize what they're doing to themselves. They don't even realize what they're doing to each other. Maybe, Jonah, if somebody would go there and would show them what they're doing, it would be different. And he says, how could I crush people who don't even know? They don't even know what the love of God actually looks like. And then he ends by saying, and much livestock. 120,000 people and much livestock. And this is where the whole thing circles right back to the beginning and to Yom Kippur, and to repentance, and to forgiveness. See, livestock in that day was the only system by which a person could move on with their lives and never look back. It was the sacrificial system of 
the day for forgiveness. When you wanted to be forgiven, you would take an animal to the priest and he would sacrifice that animal for atonement for your sins. So as God closes this book on Jonah, he says, Jonah, you have pity on a stupid plant because of the fact that it is withered and taken away your comfort. Why would I, a gracious and merciful God who is like a mother swan who plucks out her own feathers and lines the nest so that her kids can be comfortable, who's always on the side of people, why would I not have mercy on such an influential city filled with more people than anywhere else who don't even know what they're doing, but the potential for repentance is everywhere in Nineveh? Look at all that livestock. See, all Jonah saw were pagans. All God saw was potential. And all God sees when he looks at our city, when he looks at Detroit, he sees potential. When God looks at you, he sees potential. He sees someone who's worth dying for. That's why he sent Jesus, to meet you in the broken places and to settle the debt once and for all so that you don't have to sacrifice the goats anymore. There's this moment right before Jesus is killed and uh, Pilate, you know, he brings out uh, Barabbas and he brings out Jesus and he's like, hey, which, which of these, I'm going to let one of these guys go free. Who should we let go free? And they're all like, set the murderer free. The murderer's Barabbas. They're like, let him go. We'd rather, we'd rather him walking the streets than have Jesus, this Jesus character walking around anymore saying that he's God. Kill Jesus, right? Release Barabbas. And so, so Pilate, he then asked the crowd, he's like, okay, so we'll free Barabbas. So what shall we do with Jesus? innocent Jesus. And this is what they say. They say, take him away. Take him away. Take him away and crucify him. And the word take him away is the Hebrew word Azazel. The name of the second goat on Yom Kippur. The one that carries the sins of the people away to never, ever, ever be heard from again. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and exactly what he did for me. And in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and after he died, Jesus, he, he was in the tomb for three days and three nights. But then he resurrected, and he proved once and for all that he's God, that he wasn't lying, and that he's actually worth following. And he proved once and for all that God is Kassed. He's willing to shed his own blood to keep his covenant with everyone. abounding in steadfast love. He's a person who, unlike Jonah, who wanted to kill his enemies, he actually died for his enemies. He died for the people on the other side. But unlike the Savior that the book obviously points us to, our main character, Jonah, he had a very different view. See, when you read the book of Jonah, you see a guy who wanted grace to fall on him while judgment falls on his enemies. He wanted Yom Kippur for himself but he wanted Sodom and Gomorrah for Nineveh. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we find ourselves there too sometimes. God, you're so good to me. Thank you for being so good to me. Now, if you could just swiftly bring justice upon my enemies, that'd be great, right? Not realizing that when we view people through that lens, we're actually living something that is very anti-Christ. Just like Jonah was. Because Jonah's story is our story. We all run from God. We all judge our neighbors. We all hide in the comforts that are afforded to us. We all have moments when we think the goats were for us, but they were not for them. 
But the book of Jonah ends with a question. That question is, should I not pity? And I think we need to ask ourselves that same question today. Should we not pity? Should we not err on the side of grace? Should we not err on the side of love and uncompassion? Should we not meet people right where they are, no matter where that may be, and pick them back up? Should we not believe in people's potential? Their potential for repentance. Their potential to change. Their potential to make something out of the life that nobody could ever have expected to that person. I can't believe to see that. It's so amazing when you pour into somebody who you think that's going to bear no fruit and then down the road you see what they become and you're like, wow, God, you're really at work in their lives. I never even saw that coming. That's the God that we serve. He's a miracle working God. Will you commit to finding that potential in other people? With Christmas just ahead of us, will you commit to living a more compassionate life than you ever have before? Will you help us fight for the underdogs this season? Cassette is an amazing gift that was given to us. It was given to me. It was given to you. But not, it was not just a gift that we were meant to receive. It was actually a life that was modeled for us as our example for how we can now share it with the world. God is trying to teach the world something through the life of Jonah. When you run, God chases. When you're faithless, He's faithful. But his love is meant to transform us so that we could be more and more and more like him. As we never ultimately hear what happened to Jonah, the story ends in a very bizarre place. But I can tell you this, because I know how God is. God's steadfast love did not run out on Jonah, nor did it run out on Nineveh, and it hasn't run out on our city. Every person that you meet is a child of the living God. Someone who God was willing to lay down his own life for. Someone that he was willing to give everything for. God sees people differently than we see people. We are his children. And my challenge to you this, today is to leave this place. And to go out into our city and to remember that every person that we meet has a story. Just like you have a story and just like I have a story. And in that story is pain. And in that story is anger. And in that story is bitterness. And in that story is resentment. And in that story is love and hope and joy and doubt and all the things that we struggle with every single day. But let's look past all that. And let's see potential. Because that person is going somewhere amazing as long as God's hand is on them. And I believe that it is. In this Christmas season, we're going to have a chance in helping pave that path for people, help leading them to a degree on that path forward. And we have a role to play in other people's stories. And I want to encourage you to get on board with that. If God can do that for Nineveh, he can do it for Detroit. If God can use someone like Jonah, so disobedient to heal a city like that, so broken, he can definitely use us. If all we need to do is be willing, hey God, we'll go. We will go. We want to love the people of our city. We will go. But all it takes is saying, yes, I believe in the potential of the people that I'm encountering. I believe in the potential of this city. I believe that God's love stretches way beyond this room and into them. I just, I want us to love people really well this season. I want us to do it all the time, but at Christmas especially, man, my heart is just so full of compassion. Like, how can we be so generous? How can we be so loving? How can we just live a steadfast love that never, ever, ever runs out in our community? And that's my challenge to you today as we get ready to close and pray. Let's love people well this Christmas.